0: everyone to episode 106, Ethical Concerns. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How you doing over there, Dalen?
1: I'm okay. I'm okay. You know, I just looking at the title of the show today, I had to think about my where I stand on ethical concerns, generally speaking. And what I realized is that I've never been really much into the ethics thing. Okay, generally, I have good ethics, but I've never really prioritized them. And and, except in science, of course, everybody out there, all you reviewers, I have very good ethics in science. (laughs) But
0: we don't think about
1: (laughs) ethics um, enough. You know, there's all this stuff going on in the world and we don't care. We don't care. We're letting it happen. And we're going to talk to Lee today about some of that stuff. I don't know. I've got concerns, though.
0: Science, technology, things are advancing faster and faster. And these ethics conversations, bioethics, how are our technological advances going to affect humans and society moving forward how are we going to allow them to affect us these are really fascinating questions and so yeah i'm excited about the show today but let's get down to business make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com where you not only can subscribe to our newsletter but you will also find all of our past episodes and other great resources and of course follow us on social media at stemcellpodcast on twitter stemcellpodcast on facebook and of course don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. You'll get new episodes downloaded automatically to your phone or computer. As we alluded to, our show is going to be fantastic today and full of ethics. We're going to be discussing ethics in stem cells with Dr. Lee Turner, and he is very well versed on medical and stem cell tourism, FDA guidelines around stem cell treatments, and This should be a fascinating conversation, but before we get into all of that, it's time for the roundup. What do you say, Dalen?
1: Yes, of course, but first, as scientists helping scientists, Stem Cell Technologies offers several resources to help scientists stay current and connected with their fields, including this podcast and the on Science Newsletter. So this week... You know, in the holiday season, some people are having trouble with their intestines. I know I, for one, just got brutalized, and it doesn't look like it's going to get any better for the next few weeks. So, Stem Cell, apropos, we'd like to let listeners know about another one of their weekly science newsletters, Intestinal Cell News. Read it while you're on the throne, for Christ's sake. This free... Weekly newsletter curates all the latest research, industry news, events, jobs, and policy news impacting the field of intestinal cell biology. Subscribe to Intestinal Cell News to keep up with the field and save time at www.intestinalcellnews.com. Let's round it up, Kiki. Yeah,
0: my, my Thanksgiving, I didn't really have any intestinal issues. Sorry to hear about yours.
1: <laughs> it's, isn't it inevitable? I mean, what's, what does anybody expect is going to happen?
0: I don't know. Anyway, what do we expect when mosquitoes and humans come together?
1: Disease, bloodletting.
0: <laughs> Bites, bloodletting, disease, terrible things. Reported at the annual Entomological Society of America meeting that took place a couple of weeks ago, researcher from Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Clement Vinoguer, I can't pronounce that last name, so I'm just (laughs) going to... Vinoguer? Vinoguer?
1: Yes, of course. There we go.
0: Sorry about that. (laughs) Mosquitoes have a challenging task ahead of them. Their challenge in life is that they have to find food... It is hidden underneath skin, which is a defense of the hosts, right? We have this skin. I mean, if you poke at it and it doesn't break, you have to get in there to get the food if you're a mosquito. And how do you know the food is there? Female mosquitoes go about this job, their blood quest. Picking up on a bunch of cues. Carbon dioxide is one of them. There's also vision, the sight of large looming objects. Body heat and body scent also play a role. And the targeting can actually be pretty picky. So, and within some species like humans, you probably know some people who they get bitten all the time. Mosquitoes just love me. And other people who it's like, "Eh, mosquitoes kind of leave me alone. So what is it about these certain individuals that makes some more alluring than others? Well, researchers wanted to find out whether or not mosquitoes could actually respond, learn and respond to behavioral changes. So they took odors and took these scents over 80s aegypti mosquitoes during 10 rounds of 30 second, and I love this phrase, educational shaking (laughs) in a small cage. (laughs) So they shook the mosquitoes for 30 seconds while they were being stimulated by a particular scent. And so the question here is basically, if you're slapping at a mosquito, is that mosquito going to learn to avoid you and maybe leave you alone? Are some mosquitoes going to learn a new behavior. And so this test setup that they found after these lessons of shaking the mosquitoes, the mosquitoes became indifferent to the skin odor of what were normally very attractive humans. And Vinogur reported at the meeting that when they were placed at the base of a Y-shaped tube, they flew into the Y branch that smelled of human skin just at the level of random chance. And so they no longer were preferentially heading towards the scent of humans. They learned to associate some smells with the shaking more readily than others. And one of those is uh, the smell of a rat, which contains octanol. However, chicken scent, which does not contain octanol, the mosquitoes did not learn a distaste for. So this paper is also preprint in the bioarchive.org, but it suggests that mosquitoes actually have learning mechanisms in place. And even though those high-pitched whines that may bug you in the middle of spring and summer nights when you like to have your windows open, they just seem like they're never ending, that maybe a few smacks actually send those mosquitoes packing after a while.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You just got to shake them. Shake him.
0: Catch that mosquito and shake it up. Say, leave me alone, mosquito.
1: I do a little bit of shaking education. I do that sometimes with my eight-year-old.
0: <laughs> Educational shaking. Educational. Oh you just gotta,
1: like, I grab my by the arms and I go, what were you thinking? What were you thinking?
0: <laughs> what were we thinking when we decided that Dolly must have died young from disease related to being a clone?
1: She didn't are we
0: thinking so uh publishing in scientific reports from november 23rd developmental biologist kevin Sinclair of the university of nottingham in england and his colleagues report that yeah dolly had a little bit of arthritis in her hips knees and elbows but based on re-examining the remains that were actually returned they actually looked at These remains that were taken from Dolly and Megan and Morag, the skeletons that have been in national museums in Scotland, this is average bone damage. Average osteoporosis, Dolly was not dissimilar to other naturally conceived sheep of her age. So she's just kind of somewhere on the osteoporosis, arthritis spectrum of sheep in general. And the researchers say if there were a direct link with cloning and osteoarthritis, we would have expected to find a lot worse and would be more extensive and have a different distribution than what we're finding in ordinary sheep. And they go on to say that the arthritis and the creaky joints might have stemmed from the fact that Dolly gave birth to six lambs and pregnancy, we know well, is a risk factor for arthritis and osteoporosis. Multiple pregnancies are. So we blamed it on cloning, but Dolly was just pretty normal, even though she was euthanized due to advanced lung disease and her severe arthritis.
1: So we should be cloning people is what you're saying.
0: Yeah, let's go for it. (laughs) That's right. That's fine. At least in sheep, Dolly, it was not evidence of disproportionate disease levels. Good news. Just fine. Yeah, it's good news for cloning. Bad news for raw cookie dough, though. Got bad news for raw cookie dough. Doesn't have anything to do with cloning, however. People think that maybe, oh, raw cookie dough, if I just haven't put the eggs in it yet, that it's fine to eat, fine to lick that spoon as you're stirring everything together. Nope. Uh Uh-uh. Don't do it. Researchers just found the source of a United States... E. coli outbreak that sickened 63 people between December 2015 and September 2016, published November 22nd in New England Journal of Medicine, was flour. Flour that was used in raw cookie dough, the Samuel Crow, an epidemiologist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, led this study and they used standard questionnaires to try and figure out what led to this cluster of illnesses. Flour is not usually tracked on the surveys. And so when they did the initial investigation to figure it out and say, okay, it's probably eggs or you know these things that normally harbor E. coli, it was inconclusive. And so then they went to in depth personal interviews with 10 of the people who became ill. And Samuel Crow said, I got a little lucky. Two people remembered eating raw cookie dough before they got sick. And they sent Crow pictures of the bag of flour they used to make the batter. And both were produced in the same plant. And he said, that was pretty unusual. And so they did all this follow up questioning and pinned down flour as the likely source. They analyzed the flour, isolated strains of E. coli bacteria that produce shiga toxins that make E. coli dangerous. And though E. coli usually thrive in moist environments, like pre-washed lettuce and other places, it can survive also dried out, desiccated for months, only to be reactivated with moisture, with water. So when the dry flour comes together with eggs or oil, that can wake the dormant bacteria up, allowing them to start to replicate <sighs> and causing sickness when you lick that spoon. Don't lick the bowl. Don't lick the bowl.
1: I'll be honest. I let my kids do it mm-hmm. after we have the eggs. I'm a real animal. But yeah. the best part of this story for me is this dude, our dudette,
0: Samuel Crow. Sam
1: Crow, he's like the Sherlock Holmes of epidemiologists. It's like the when they hand out the Pulitzer, it's going <laughs> to be him. And he's it's a legendary story, I'm sure. He tells that story, oh, I saw, and they both remember, and I saw the bag, and, and everyone's going crazy. I love this story for that reason, it? <laughs>
0: Yeah, it is that aspect of epidemiology is tracking things down and solving a mystery. Where did the illness begin? Where did it come from? And in this case, it was the flour. Now, there is heat treatment that can kill E. coli and other pathogens in flour, but we don't use heat treatment in the United States before flour reaches the shelves because it can change the structure of the flour and affect texture of your baked goods, but potentially irradiation. Could be a better option, but nobody does that either. So basically, don't lick the bowl, people. I don't know. I grew up licking the bowl. I still have a hard time telling my son no. It's
1: so hard. I can't do it. I'm confused. It's in the flour. It's People are going to be out there being like, oh, I can't eat. lick the bowl when I'm making cookies. But can't you make a lot of stuff with flour? That's the scary a thing to me. Things. This is in. Flowers and everything. Yes, so. but
0: it's fine after you bake it. You know, if you're baking it, it's going to be fine. But it's just that raw uh, dough. No raw
1: flour. Okay. No raw How about, flour. can we just keep the E. coli out of the flour? Then maybe there's another approach there that no one's thinking if about. If we could.
0: If we could, yeah. If
1: only.
0: Oh. Yeah. Well, thinking about other approaches, I started this roundup with a mosquito story. And this last story kind of uh, goes into the, the topic of mosquitoes again. But from the perspective of mosquito control, we're using gene editing tools like CRISPR to introduce what are known as gene drives into different organisms, pest organisms, to see if we can get rid of them. And to date, we haven't released them into the wild, but there's a real question. If you introduce a gene drive that leads to its propagation of a gene throughout a population at greater than random or greater than 50% levels, the question is, how is that going to affect the population? How is it going to affect things in the wild? Do we really know enough to, say, put a gene drive for sterility into mosquitoes and release those mosquitoes into the wild and let it go and see what happens. So publishing November 16th in BioArchive and also in PLOS Biology, a couple of papers discuss this topic from the direction of computer simulation, and both of them say... Uh tweaking DNA with gene drives. This, these gene drives could force a gene through a population so easily that a small number of stray animals or plants could spread it to new territory, and such an event may have unknown, potentially damaging ramifications. Kevin Esvelt of MIT, a co-author of both papers, said, we need to get out of the ivory tower and have this discussion in the open because ecological engineering will affect everyone living in the area. So the real concern is that gene drives, quote, are probably too powerful to us to seriously consider deploying in conservation, according to geneticist Neil Gemmell of the University of Otago in New Zealand. And he's a co-author of the PLOS biology paper. There are other weaker solutions like the DAISY drive. It's like a gene drive, but weaker. It splits up components of the drive, called guide RNAs. And then the guide RNAs direct the gene editing machinery to its DNA target. And then DNA gets snipped and the genetic material swapped. But as the genes get inherited or not during reproduction, later generations become less likely to inherit these pieces, which are spaced apart in the chromosomes that are needed to operate the gene drive. So with the direct gene drive, they're spaced more closely together. And this drive has equal likelihood of being passed from generation to generation. The daisy drives potentially make it less likely to be passed as later generations move forward. So maybe there are tamer gene drives. Maybe we can tame the gene drive and make it safer, but this is a question that as biologists and geneticists work on this stuff in the laboratory, we really need to think about, you know, okay, do we really want to affect mosquitoes so much that we're willing to stick a gene drive into the natural environment.
1: Personally, I'm willing to do anything. I hate mosquitoes, <laughs> but I understand. You can't just disseminate this stuff in the world, right? A law of unintended yeah. consequences pretty much predicts that you're screwing yourself.
0: Unintended consequences. And ecosystems are systems. And we need to understand the entire system and know what the consequences will be. I mean, yeah. <laughs> oh, gene drives. Ever since I learned about gene drives, I've been like, that's scary. That's one of the things yeah. we need ethicists for.
1: We got to talk to our <laughs> ethicists about our resident ethicists on the show. <laughs> yeah. Very science fiction, these scenarios, you know, they all begin with some aberrant gene drive in my book. Right?
0: Yeah. It's fascinating stuff, but good things to think about. All right. I'm done with my part of the roundup. Daylin, tell me about some stem cell news.
1: I'll tell you about stem cells. I want to lead apropos, as I alluded to earlier, It's the season. We're starting with the intestine, okay? All right?
0: It's <laughs> the season of intestines.
2: <laughs> it really
1: ought to be. It ought to be. There's holiday cheer, and then there's the other side of that. Everything with the front has a back. You know it, or maybe you don't. Maybe it's just me. I'm going to tell you about intestines, okay? So the ability of the intestinal lining to, like, stand up to the assault of the holidays. It depends on these intestinal crypt stem cells that like sit in these tiny little crypts along the intestinal epithelium. And there's a lot of uh, regulatory apparatus that allows those to self-renew and deal with the wear and tear of eating and the acidic environment and all that. So that it's one of these systems with massive cellular turnover. But maybe what a lot of people understand is that there's certain cues that can cause the stem cells in these niches to be able to handle and to respond to different volumes of food coming in. So this intestinal epithelium does a lot more than just absorb the nutrients from your lunch. It can grow and shrink and adjust the the constitution of the cells in response to your diet. And understanding that process may give us some important insights into the cells that go wrong, the malignant type of cancer cells that can cause all these cancers of the uh, intestine and the bowel. So a group at the University of Illinois, led by Megan Daly, assistant professor in the Department of Animal Science, and her group, they're looking for signals and cellular responses within these intestinal epithelial cells that vary in response to different concentrations of glucose this was published in the journal of cellular physiology now the rationale here being presumably that the you know the american diet the western diet with the high intake and disparate maybe balance of glucose and fats may be causing a lot of intestinal issues and cancer and so the idea is if you can see what the responses are in response to different diet and increased volume of nutrients, maybe you can understand what's going on in these cancer cells. So what they did is they isolated the stem cells from these intestinal crypts in mice and they exposed them to varying levels of glucose. And this was representing levels that were normally seen after you know a high-volume or low-volume meal. And what they showed is that the stem cells exposed to higher levels of glucose had higher rates of glycolysis but rates of oxidative phosphorylation that didn't change relative to the low-glucose cells. So in other words, the cells switched into a growth mode when exposed to more glucose. And as you might imagine, increased growth, pace of growth over the lifetime, increases your risk to like aberrant growth and multiple-hit type cancer genesis. So the idea there is if you can kind of counteract this turbo growth mode, you might be able to mitigate the formation of neoplasms there. And the next idea was to identify what the driving force was behind this glycolysis on, like, a molecular level. And they were focusing on the protein kinase networks that are associated with glucose transport. And the idea going in, the hypothesis, was it would be the same networks that were operating in both the low and the high, just at different levels. But it turns out that this wasn't the case. There was actually a totally different pathway that we used under low versus high glucose conditions. And these two different protease kinase networks that are associated with the high and low glucose content are really important because the fact that you have two distinct networks that are governing the low basal growth versus this supercharged growth kind of suggests that if you were to block the proliferation that's mediated by the one network, the turbocharged growth, you may be able to target the molecular factors that are underpinning the genesis of these cancers. So it's kind of like, to bottom line it, you know, we're eating too much, and the eating mm-hmm. too much is causing the activation of these pathways, and we want to shortcut it so we can eat as much as we want <laughs> and not get cancer. Yeah. That's the American way. But in all, in all seriousness, I think one of the more important things is that these pathways are probably integrally tied to the growth that underlies the cancer genesis. So if we could understand the pathways that are active in these neoplasms, it would be easier to target them. Also, easier to target these robust stem cells that are usually pretty refractory to other treatments. So it's a nice story that's rooted in our glut for food in America, especially around the holidays. Think about that next time you... Stuff
0: yourself. (laughs) The glut for food and also, I mean, this is a little bit of evidence behind some of the nutritional therapies or treatments that people have discussed and put forward for cancer treatment. So people talk about reducing sugar in your diet and there's not really a lot of evidence that says why this does or does not work. And so maybe this is a little bit of evidence suggesting that reducing the glucose levels in your diet will decrease that proliferative ability so
1: another reason to eat healthy
0: adding something mechanistic yeah eat healthily eat more fiber everyone i sound like my grandmother
1: wait for the new year i guess
0: (laughs) get through the holidays and then be healthy well
1: if it doesn't work out on that front and the cancer does come we might have a way we might have a way of treating them so Cancer stem cells, as I kind of alluded to there, they represent a tiny fraction of the cells that are in a tumor, but it only takes one or two of these cells to seed a new tumor, oftentimes at distal sites, you know, metastasis and full dissemination of cancer going from the early to the late kind of much more risky stages. So the challenge of physicians and researchers is not only finding these cells and stopping them from spreading, but treating them, you know, killing them or are rooting them in their initial niche. So in a study led by Deepanjan Pan, a Illinois professor of bioengineering, researchers designed nanoparticles that specifically bind to a protein that's specifically on the surface of breast cancer stem cells. And encapsulated in these nanoparticles uh, is this drug that it should be familiar, but I'm sure no one will know what it is at first naming. It's niclosamide. This is the drug commonly prescribed around the world To treat tapeworm infections and why it's important is because in cancer stem cells it turns off key gene pathways that gives the cells the stem-like properties that enable them to grow and spread okay so what pans group did is they got these nanoparticles there they have a homing device that's based on the protein cd44 which many groups initially Irv weissman i think showed that this was really specific For the cancer stem cells. Uh, I think that's still debatable, but there's a lot of clinical trials based on that idea. And what the PANS group did is they tested these homing nanoparticles on breast cancer tumors in both cell culture and in live mice. And the delivery of niclosamide is really relevant, again, because it's usually used to treat tapeworm and it's effective on these cancer cells, but more than that, It's on the list of essential medicines. This is World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. That is an index of the safest, underlined safest, and most effective drugs in the world. So it's already been proven safe. It's already proven effective. And now been shown clinically to impact the growth of cancer stem cells. In this study, in molecular cancer therapeutics, The cancer stem cells, they lost their stem-like properties after treatment with these nanoparticles. They were less able to cause cancer recur or spread, metastasize, and therefore the, the researchers also showed significant decrease in overall cancer growth, both in cell culture and in mice. So here's a great idea, using something that's already in play, just tweaking it, modernizing it, fitting it into this novel delivery mechanism by the nanoparticles, and it's creating a real accessible and cost-efficient treatment to prevent the recurrence of cancer in many patients. And right now, the researchers are working to create a combination therapy that can deliver drugs for the primary cancer, like traditional chemotherapeutic regimen, but also using targeted agents that can seek out and destroy or mitigate the growth Of These are spread of the cancer stem cells using this kind of nanoparticle drug delivery system. So we've heard a lot about this. I think just last show we were talking about Robert Langer messing around with nanoparticles. Nanoparticles are a great fear because, you know, they thought that they can get into our biological systems and run amok. So a lot of fear, a lot of promise with nanoparticles. I'm on the side of promise. And also incorporating this idea of the smart bomb type element, which I think is really burgeoning in a lot of clinical trials, mostly focused on these kind of cytotoxic T cell based therapeutic targeting of cancer. So this has everything in one, a little bit of nano, a little bit of targeted therapeutics, a lot of other stuff. Kiki, we're living in the future.
0: Seems like it. I'm Stuff like this, I'm. it's just this super targeted seek and destroy i'm just like wow is this i mean is this the united states military coming up with some kind of defense (laughs) system what's going on
1: well if it were the military we'd probably be spending a lot more money on it right (laughs) Yeah. yeah well i'll tell you what we haven't spent enough on and uh you know this is a bit shifting gears but i think it's uh It's just not fair on one front. Let me elaborate. So according to data provided by the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, in the United States, approximately 88,000 adults die each year due to alcohol consumption. NIAA added that alcohol is the third leading preventable cause of death in the country. So yeah, I'm this guy. I'm the holiday season guy saying stop drinking so much. But there may be, you know, a little bit of silver lining here. Maybe as long as you're a male, okay? So let me get to that. We already knew that alcohol, too much of it, in particular, is bad for us. And now there's a mu- emerging idea that this whole hypothesis that moderate drinking is good may be a bit specious, and we're lowering the limits. But do we actually know what it does to our brains? Well, you know, there's long been a link between alcohol abuse and the risk of developing liver disease, and also there is clinically a much higher incidence of neurodegeneration. But we haven't really looked specifically at the brain stem cells. These neural stem cells play a key role in supporting healthy cognitive function. And more specifically, we haven't looked at this in differences between male and female. And males and females have long been known to have different risk associated with alcohol consumption and different response. And now, Research is focused on the impact of alcohol on neural stem cells, those undifferentiated cells in the central nervous system that have the ability to specialize as and when needed. So this is a study from Dr. Ping Wu, who is in Stem Cell Reports out of the University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston, and they performed a series of experiments involving mice, of course, to show that alcohol alters neural stem cell differentiation and affects cell survival. And I think what's really the most notable is they notice there's a different impact on females compared with males. So just to drill down into the details there, generally amongst males and females, maybe this is why we do it around the holiday season, so much less weight gain when you have this a lot of alcohol in your diet. So kind of the drunkorexic effect, hey, there's a plus side there if we only didn't have such a high cost. Interestingly, with women, as you might expect – or maybe not expect, but observationally with the mice, there was less total intake. But as you might infer, based on the reduced body weight of the females, the females actually had more alcohol intake per unit measurement, or per mass unit, in this case, grams. Also interesting findings, whether or not they relate to humans, is open to debate. Females seem to exhibit more severe symptoms of intoxication over a shorter period of time. Hmm. Also, unfortunately, and this is what's so terribly unfair, it seemed to have a more detrimental effect on neurogenesis in females than in males. And, you know, there's a lot of explanations for this. And humans particularly, you know, we haven't really looked into the neurogenesis aspect. There's a lot of social considerations involved there. But it's also long been known that males and females have differential capacities for alcohol metabolism. So just an important thing to, I think, take away from this study is that the differential response to males and females may be based in their biology. And in fact, this may have a differential effect on their relative risks, specifically in this case for neurodegenerative effects or the lack of neural recovery. So Kiki, I'm afraid while I'm throwing them back, you're going to have to take your time this holiday season. Okay, I'm going for it, but you need to moderate.
0: <laughs> I know, what a bummer, biology bummer. But seriously, we're going to have to look at this very seriously to even the playing field. That's where (laughs) I'm at. (laughs) I want to feel comfortable drinking just as much as everybody else.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a good, you know, it's true. One of the great inequalities. We need gender alcohol consumption equality is what we need to work on in our society. I
0: wonder if there's, you know, because women have uh, the monthly hormone cycle that is Mm -hmm. predominant and men have a different daily hormone cycle. It's different. So I wonder if there's a hormone if there's some kind of relation to the cycle the cyclic aspect of it and whether or not there's an effect on neurodifferentiation and degeneration at different times of the month
1: yes well and even
0: with men at different times of the day
1: you're very very smart kiki because one of the discussion points of this article was in fact that there is also interaction with the endocrine axis which yeah. is much you know different in men versus women yeah. as you alluded to with the hormonal cycles there. But yeah, you know, uh, there's a lot. Questions remain unanswered and we need to get, you know, get it sorted out before we tie on the death buzz this holiday season.
0: Is there a certain time of the month that is best for me to drink? Well, (laughs) that's what I need to know.
1: (laughs) Looking at your busy life, I would say, is there a time when it's not justified? You know, women, that's the great unfairness of it all. Women probably have more reason to drink. If I know my family, my life, and my miserable influence on my wife. All right, maybe a little too close to home. Let's get on with some kind of, you know, something maybe less about me, more about our guest. We're going to talk a little bit, just as a prelude to our guest today, who's going to talk about bioethics and the interface of stem cell tourism, Well. We have a good lead in there. There's new stem cell treatment guidelines that were just released by the FDA. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration announced its guidelines on stem cell therapies just now on November 16th. And they're meant to clear up the confusion on treatments are going to be designed, designated safe and appropriate and which therapies have the most risks and the most benefits. So I think this is a big issue that we need to talk about with Lee here is like the patients really maybe just don't even know what they're putting themselves at risk for because it's so murky. These guidelines have been carefully worded to emphasize the limited space regulators have between allowing approvals of what could be life-changing cellular therapies and preventing manufacturers from marketing unproven stem cell products straight to patients. So this is uh, Scott Gottlieb, FDA commissioner, said in the statement, quote, the promise of this technology is why the FDA is so committed to encouraging and supporting innovation in this field. And I think this is a really important takeaway, is that they're trying not to staunch the innovation here. They're trying to be permissive to a point. But the rapid growth and promise of the field has increasingly sowed the ground for the entry of some unscrupulous actors. And we've talked about this in in previous episodes. You know, there's these clinics that are kind of in a Wild West mentality to the detriment of these patients and with considerable risk. FDA officials said that they would enforce stricter measures on stem cell clinics that offer potentially dangerous therapies, many of which cost thousands of dollars. And they were administered to patients who have life threatening conditions. These clinics have been flourishing in the United States for a long time now, way too long, with federal regulators leaving them alone for the most part. And there's been a clamor and an uproar. The agency has been under increased pressure from scientists and consumers to clarify its guidelines on these treatments because they use therapies to repair body parts that have been damaged by injury and illness. But the methodology behind them is by no means standard. And the scientific proof underlining these therapies is, you know, weak at best. So stem cell experts have cried foul over the proliferation of these consumer clinics that advertised being able to treat all manners of conditions, from brain disease to sclerosis. And this was particularly placed into the spotlight in March when news of these three women were blinded, who were blinded by these stem cell treatments, and that made national headlines with an article in New England Journal of Medicine. So I think there's been a lot of pressure on FDA officials, and to their credit, they're making a commitment, they're making a statement about what they're going to allow and not allow, and said they're going to step up enforcement of issues and regulatory standards that are already in place. But I guess the question is, you know, is this too little too late? Is it a real commitment or is it just more of the same? I guess there's a, the major market forces here that are propelling these therapies in an unsafe way seem almost unstoppable, but... I guess, uh, Lee could maybe give us some insight into that, uh, in just a little while.
0: Yeah. I mean, these are big questions and I can't wait for the interview.
1: Me neither. It's going to be stimulating.
0: Definitely stimulating. All right. Well, that was a really fun and informative roundup as we move through the science stories. It's now time for our interview. So, Our friends at Stem Cell Technologies would like to introduce their one-stop resource for researchers who are using or looking to use organoids in their experiments. Stem Cell's Organoid Information Hub provides scientists with instructional videos, educational webinars, expert interviews, technical tips, and curated publications to help researchers set up and optimize organoids as a research model in their labs. Learn about organoid culture from the experts at Stem Cell visit stemcell.com/discover-organoids that's www.stemcell.com/discover-organoids All right the stem cell podcast and stem cell technologies are very pleased to welcome our guest today Dr. Lee Turner Dr. Turner is an associate professor in the Center for Bioethics at the University of Minnesota Turner's research addresses ethical, legal, and regulatory issues associated with clinics engaged in direct to consumer marketing of unproven and unlicensed cell based interventions. We all know that this has kind of gotten out of control in the stem cell industry, and Dr. Turner is an author of numerous publications, including a recent paper in Cell Stem Cell from 2016, along with Stem Cell Podcast past guest Paul Knopfler. Dr. Turner, welcome to the show.
2: Uh, Thanks for having me on your program. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, we're actually thrilled to get you on the show. We've talked a bunch about the ethics of stem cell regulation and marketing, but we haven't spoken with an expert in a while. So let's dig into it. And as we begin, can you introduce yourself to our audience and kind of talk about your history, where you came from and how you ended up studying this particular area of ethics?
2: So I'm a Canadian citizen. I've worked at a number of different institutions. I was, uh, went to the U- USC uh, for my PhD, and I uh, was in a religion and social ethics program with a focus in bioethics, and then I've worked in different places since then, Hastings Center, University of Toronto Joint Center for Bioethics, um, Biomedical Ethics Unit at McGill, and now University of, Tro- of Minnesota. And um, I arrived at University of Minnesota with a focus on cre- patients crossing borders for medical care. And, uh, you know, a subset of that interest was I was very curious about patients who would go to places like China, India, Mexico for unproven stem cell interventions. And around 2012, I began to realize that, you know, there were businesses in the United States that looked very much like these international facilities in terms of the, the marketing claims they were making, in terms of the patients they were trying to attract. And so for around the last five years, It's not the only thing I'm interested in and the only thing I do, but I've been pretty focused on the emergence of, you know, what we can call the direct-to-consumer marketplace here in the United States. So these are just all kinds of businesses. Um, Some self-described stem stem cell clinics. Sometimes it's orthopedic clinics, sports medicine clinics, pain management facilities, uh, all making claims that they have stem cell treatments available for individuals. And so... It's really a pretty expansive territory. So sometimes it's well-defined, like I said, you know, an ortho clinic that's treating people with orthopedic conditions. Other times, these are businesses that will make claims about stem cell treatments for 20, 30, 40 diseases. Those are the ones that are of greatest interest to me.
1: So just to, you know, step back more generally, talking about the field, I remember when I was first getting into stem cell Research. There was, you know, this bioethical maelstrom that was centered about whether or not we should be doing the research and what type of research. If we were going to have little, you know, aspects of human biology taking place in a dish, whether or not that was ethical. And I know I'm, I'm sure you have an interest there as well. But this seems to be more like, is it a more consumer watchdog type of approach, or would you say this is maybe getting into the bigger picture? bioethics in terms of like how the direction we're moving as a society? Maybe you can uh, drill down on specifically what aspects of the bioethical debate we're centered on here, or you're centered on.
2: Yeah, that's a helpful way to frame it. So I mean, you're right, there's kind of different stages to this debate, or or different aspects to it. And so... In addition to this direct-to-consumer marketplace, you know, one of the earlier conversations was was focused more on embryonic stem cells than adult stem cells, and a lot of that had, conversation had to do with, you know, the source of stem cells um, you know, from embry- embryos and the moral status of embryos. So, I mean, it's not quite accurate to say that's an earlier stage of debate, and we moved on from it. But in terms of the businesses that I'm interested in, most interested in. You know, for the most part, they don't make claims about embryonic stem cells. Instead, you know, their focus is they, they make claims that they're, well, there are exceptions, but many of them will claim that they use adult stem cells. And that's actually part of their argument. That's part of their marketing rhetoric, that adult stem cells, because they're not obtained from embryos, are ethical stem cells. And there are no ethical issues of any kind. And I think that's, you know, quite misleading because, you know, there's a the question of, where stem cells are obtained from, but then there's also how they're packaged to patients or to consumers, um, to individuals who are interested in obtaining access to them. And you know, one of the really striking features of this marketplace to me is the often profound gap between the marketing claims that are made, which are often you know, very dramatic, very powerful, uh, strong form claims. You don't usually see the language of cures. You know That's something I would mention. But what you typically see is more that You know, this should be helpful. We've seen evidence that it's helped our patients in the past. It's described as a stem cell treatment or therapy. And then if you actually, you know, begin to ask questions, well, this, okay, this is the marketing rhetoric, but what's the evidence base for these marketing claims? That's where what you often find is there's not much evidence at all, or there's no evidence. So a lot of the businesses that I'm interested in, there's no public record that they've done preclinical research of any kind. There's no public record that they published phase one studies or phase two studies or, you know, done serious clinical research of any kind. Now, there are some exceptions. I mean, you know, you can find some businesses that have contributed to literature, but, you know, looking across the marketplace, a great many of these businesses, they're just not really engaging in clinical research in any meaningful sort of way. And so it raises a lot of challenging ethical issues and legal issues. A lot of it has to do with you know, if you think it's important for people to provide an informed consent before undergoing procedures and to make meaningful choices, it's really important what information is provided to those individuals. And so if they're being fed a diet of marketing hype, rather than honest, accurate representations about the evidence in support of particular interventions, whether or not there's much data suggesting that they're safe, whether or not there's much data suggesting that they're efficacious, if it's all about you know, marketing sizzle, It's going to be very difficult for people to make meaningful, informed decisions.
0: In regards to stem cell tourism itself, in your 2016 paper, you talk a bit about the United States actually having this burgeoning stem cell therapy marketplace. And we think about stem cell tourism as like, oh, people are going to go to Mexico. People are going to go to Italy. People are going to places where there's less regulation. Can we talk a little bit about the differences between... The United States currently, and these other countries that we hear about people going to for the touristy aspect of therapies.
2: I mean, I think if you go back, say, you know, about nine years and look at the early academic literature on this topic, there's an assumption that there's a really meaningful difference. So, you know, a lot of the earlier work on on stem cell tourism or travel to clinics, marketing so called stem cell interventions. You know, there was this assumption that patients from the United States were going to the destinations that you mentioned. Canadian patients, likewise, were going to places like Mexico, India, China, from UK, Australia. And I think the, you know, the dominant assumption was people were leaving well-regulated environments, countries that had, you know, established, detailed, comprehensive laws and regulations related to cell therapies, stem cells, tissues, and so on. And they were going to jurisdictions where, uh, you know, there were gaps in legislation, there were loopholes, or there were, you know, maybe there was credible legislation, but there wasn't any meaningful regulatory body provide, providing law enforcement of any kind. And, you know, to me, one of the more unsettling features of doing research in this area is it starts to raise the question, of, at least when it comes to the United States, you know, is there really any meaningful difference distinguishing the United States from some of these marketplaces that are typically seen as you know, just not having very well-regulated marketplaces. And I think that uh, right now, when you look across the United States and you have hundreds of businesses making claims about unproven stem cell interventions, there's not an awful lot that would seem to separate the United States from, from countries that in the past have been sharply criticized for allowing these businesses to proliferate. I think it says something that we don't want to think about the United States. I think most mm-hmm. of us think that the FDA is doing its job and state medical boards are, are effective in terms of regulating practitioners in those states. And you know, having spent a lot of time looking at this marketplace, uh, I have to come to the conclusion that that's just not currently the case.
1: Why do you think that is? Do you think it's a lack of just momentum at the regulatory level? Is the science too new? I mean, you kind of alluded to the point maybe peripherally, but people go abroad for a lot of things, not just these unproven stem cell therapies, because they're more maybe expensive in, in the United States. You know, sometimes people go abroad to have, you know, cosmetic surgery or other types of orthopedic surgery or something just because... The healthcare apparatus isn't so cumbersome there. Do a head you think-
0: transplant, for instance. No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, do you think that maybe there's a lack of information to the public that they don't know? They don't really appreciate, I guess, that this is unproven therapy because there is this kind of medical tourism idea? Or do you think there's like a breakdown in the regulatory apparatus in America that's allowing it to happen here?
2: Well I mean you're right that in terms of people leaving the United States and going to other countries there are there are many reasons it's not you know there's not a sort of a single explanation people go for different kinds of procedures so in terms of the travel abroad phenomenon you know it's it's multi-layered it's multi-faceted there's lots of reasons for travel sometimes it's cost differentials in some cases people leave jurisdictions where there's you know lengthy wait times for various medical procedures and that propels them to other jurisdictions So that's kind of a complicated story in its own right. And and actually, before I really began exploring this topic, that was the main focus of my research, looking at ethical, legal, social issues related to medical tourism or or cross-border travel. In terms of what's happening in the United States, you know, in some respects, I'm as perplexed as you are. So, I mean, you know, the United States, it has legislation in this area. We've got the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act. There's the U.S. Public Health Service Act. There's even... Fairly well defined federal regulations. There's a piece of federal regulations called 21 CFR 1271, which is about the use of cells and tissues and cell and tissue based products in human beings. And when you look at that, you know, when you look at those regulations, I think that they're, you know, they're fairly well written, they're fairly detailed. And if you had asked me several years ago, you know, if I would ever expect to see a marketplace like this in the United States, I think I would have said no. Maybe we'll see businesses operating in the cracks, but we're not going to see the emergence of a large-scale marketplace in the United States. And yet, it's happened. And you know, there's pretty extensive documentation. Um, in part, you know, that the article that, that uh, Paul Nellflor and I published in 2016, but other researchers as well. You can look and see where these businesses are located, what kind of marketing claims that they're making. I think there are some shortcomings with existing regulations in the United States. But I think the bigger problem is inadequate law enforcement. So it's, it's mm-hmm. lack of activity on the part of regulatory body. And so that to me means that it's a story about, you know, the FDA, the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC. We can talk about state medical boards. We can talk about state's attorneys general. So, you know, there are different regulatory bodies and agencies that could play a role in better overseeing this marketplace. For the most part, none of these bodies has done a particularly good job of responding in a timely manner to the spread of businesses making these kinds of unproven claims. And I suspect that, you know, to be fair to bodies like the FDA, I think lack of resources is probably an important part of the story that they don't have the financial resources and the human resources that are needed to really oversee this marketplace in a you know robust and comprehensive manner.
0: There's a lot of parallels, I think, to just the alternative medicine movement in general. So you have chiropractic, the nature of naturopathy, holistic medicine that is not necessarily scientifically proven to work. I mean, for chiropractic, there are all sorts of claims of usefulness where the evidence really suggests that, okay, for lower back pain sufferers, chiropractic adjustments can help. But other stuff about fixing people's guts and helping you think better and helping you sleep better and all these other claims, they still, to this day, go unregulated. So is there some kind of parallel that's going on with the FDA and the FTC and how these things are marketed?
2: Well, I think there are parallels, and it's worth mentioning that, you know, there are many instances where the businesses are actually one and the same, that you can find plenty of chiropractors, for example, in the United States who you know, as part of what their clinics advertise, they're advertising stem cell treatments for a wide range of indications. Same thing when it comes to naturopaths. So, you know, it's not as though every business that packages itself as a stem cell clinic, it's not as though there's necessarily physicians operating at those businesses or exclusively physicians at those businesses. It can be Mm -hmm. chiropractors, it can be naturopaths, it can be a wide range of practitioners engaged in what we might describe as complementary or alternative medicine. So I think that You know, you make a good point when you kind of draw parallels between these different kinds of marketing claims. Sometimes, you know, you can see the same facility and that's exactly what they're doing. They're fusing together these different domains, making a broad range of marketing assertions about treatments they provide. And when you go point by point looking at those claims, whether it's something involving stem cells or some other form of naturopathic healing, again, you know, the evidence base is often quite weak. It's underwhelming.
1: So uh, on that note, is there a higher standard, do you think, as an ethicist for cell-based product versus other products, let's say a homeopathic uh, regimen, that you can't prove that it works, but also it's pr- unlikely to do harm, perhaps? Is there a higher standard for a cell-based product where the potential for unintended consequences is greater, as we saw in the case of these women who were pretty much went blind because of this stem cell therapy into their eyes? Do you think that these products should be regulated differently or should there be some kind of, you know, criminal element to prosecution if you do damage to somebody through, you know, negligence?
2: Well, that's a great question. I think sometimes, you know, we make this mistaken assumption that, you know, whether it's a stem cell intervention or, say, a dietary supplement, that well, you know, maybe people are spending a lot of money on it, but it's not going to cause harm in any kind of way. And I would say, you know, you can use the example of dietary supplements to to point out that it's not just that, that people may be spending a fair bit of money and not getting any meaningful therapeutic benefit from it. Depending on what's inside, depending on what's going into people, they can actually cause harm in various sorts of ways. So I would say there may be other domains like homeopathic products or dietary supplements where You know, really, we need to be having a conversation again about inadequate regulatory oversight, a meaningful role for bodies like the FTC and the FDA to play. In the case of cells and tissues, I mean, I think there is this risk of harm that it's not just people may spend thousands or tens of thousands of dollars and not benefit from it in some kind of way. There is this possibility for physical harm. I would say the same thing with dietary supplements, but in the case of cells and tissues, we have existing regulations on the books that could be enforced and could be better enforced. I would say we need better regulations when it comes to dietary supplements. It's a related conversation, maybe a somewhat distinct one. But when it comes to cells and tissues, you know, in terms of the harms that can occur, there are some lawsuits going on right now where a number of these clinics are being sued and they're being sued by individuals that are basically claiming that they were defrauded. They spent thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. There was no therapeutic benefit. The marketing claims were all hype, all rhetoric, no evidence behind it, and they were taken advantage of. But that's not the only kind of harm. And as you mentioned, I mean, you know, we have examples now of individuals who've gone to businesses, for example, several women who suffered from age-related macular degeneration went to a clinic in Florida and ended up being blinded by the so-called stem cell procedures of that facility. So I think that that provides insight into the, the kind of risks that are in play here, the kind of harms that can occur. And so we need to appreciate that it's not just financial losses. It can be permanent injuries, and it can even be fatal outcomes because, you know, there was another business in Florida where a physician ended up losing his medical license, but it was only after two patients died after undergoing proven stem cell interventions at that facility. So the consequences can be pretty significant. And to go back to your earlier question, I think a lot of people are just thinking that these are established stem cell therapies. There's lots of encouraging data. They think that they're going for meaningful interventions, and they probably have no idea that, in fact, they could end up suffering a stroke or a pulmonary embolism, have a fatal outcome, or think they're going to improve their vision and come out blinded by the procedure. Most people, if they really understood the risks, would be thinking in very different terms.
0: Yeah, so a couple of questions from that. There's the question of okay, when is it worth the risk? You know, we have some patients who are potentially, you know, this is their last ditch effort to heal something or to even live because they've got a degenerative disease that's going to lead to their death. You know, for different people, the level of risk is very individualized. So there's the question of how do you ethically advise patients about risk in these stem cell? treatment situations. And then with, especially with unproven claims. And then secondarily, we know that there are clinical trial databases where people can find stem cell clinical trials. And some of these groups are actually using these clinical trial databases to find patients, but then doing things like charging the patients for the treatment, which seems a bit unethical in the way that it's in the way that they're using these databases to move their businesses forward.
2: Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot in what you just covered there. <laughs> I know, I know.
0: I had I, I, two, two broad questions, I know.
2: Let's start by, you know, talking about patients who are thinking of going to these businesses or have decided to go to these businesses. I think it's important to respond, you know, with understanding to individuals who are thinking of going to these clinics. You know, my sense is that, is that any of us could potentially find ourselves in circumstances where after being in a car accident, for example, and suffering a spinal cord injury or being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease or some other disease, you know, we might find ourselves going online and after, say, talking to doctors who talk about symptomatic relief, but there not being any cure available, we might find ourselves going online and looking around for alternatives. And, you know, I'm thinking about ALS discussion boards, for example, where people were diagnosed with ALS get a pretty grim message from their primary caregivers and then begin looking around online, looking for businesses or clinics, doctors who may be able to help them and, you know, sometimes are drawn in by businesses making claims about stem cell treatments. I have an easy time seeing how people can be drawn by those messages. I think you're also right that people may be willing to take risks at certain stages in their life. If they're faced with a life-threatening disease, for example, if they think their lifespan is quite short, they may be prepared to take risks that if they were healthy, not facing any threats to health, they wouldn't take those risks. And we know we need to understand that people may think about risks in different ways at different stages of their, of their life. I find myself kind of focusing on this topic in a somewhat different way, which is if you ask a different question, if you say, well, what about the businesses themselves? You know, should you be able to put out a shingle on the Internet and tell individuals with ALS that for $30,000 or for $45,000, you've got a stem cell treatment that can help them. If you've done no preclinical research, you've done you know, no animal studies, there's not really any biological plausibility to what you're doing, you've done no phase one research, you've got no phase two studies, should you really just be able to go out there and make all kinds of marketing assertions telling people you've got something that might help them when you've actually got no evidence supporting those claims? Now, you know, my argument would be, That if you're going to operate as a business, make those kinds of marketing claims, you know, whether you're charging people thousands or tens of thousands of dollars or making it freely available, which is not actually what what occurs in the marketplace. You really shouldn't be able to hop into the marketplace just based on stem cell hype and kind of the magic around stem cells. You need to have some evidence supporting your marketing claims. And then we just start getting into the usual kinds of regulatory questions, you know, in terms of, well, how much evidence do you need? How robust does the data need to be? before you go, say, from animal subjects to into human beings. The problem is we're talking about hundreds of businesses that haven't really done any of that. Yeah. So that's kind of where I find myself at, you know, concerned that the risk is that you have a marketplace where a lot of businesses are operating in fairly predatory ways, taking advantage of vulnerable populations and, in a sense, abusing them at a stage in life where they're already pretty vulnerable. Now, that's not true of every business because, I mean, there's lots of cosmetic surgery clinics and pain management clinics. It's not as though every individual is facing a life-threatening condition. I think we need to understand that there are some individuals out there where it's a valuable thing to have, you know, regulatory bodies, institutional review boards taking some steps to make sure that credible treatments are actually on the marketplace, not just bogus interventions.
1: Well, yeah. So I think you're right. That kind of summarizes uh, some of your earlier points. And we had a story in the roundup today of the show talking about how just now in the last couple of weeks, the FDA as a regulatory body has made a commitment. This is just November 16th, made a commitment to you know, increasing oversight and enforcement, as you said, in these, some of the more dubious stem cell clinics that are offering these dubious therapies. So Provided, let's say, that they can follow through on this and exert the full might, however attenuated that may be, of the FDA regulatory apparatus, what do you see as like a sustainable future for these clinics? Do you expect to just have like, the majority of them culled from the market and have the cream rise to the top? Or do you think there's going to be you know, massive correction where these kind of therapies are just not available anymore until they reach a threshold of proof? That they can be administered in the way like the typical pharmacological paradigm is done. You know, drug needs to be approved stage one, two, three before you can sell it. What shape do you see the future of this cell based therapy in these clinics taking?
2: You know, for me, the real question is what are we actually going to see from the FDA over, you know, in future in terms of months and years? You're right that on November 16th, the FDA put out some final guidance documents. There was a statement from uh, the new commissioner, Scott Gottlieb. There were some broader statements about the FDA taking steps to better regulate this marketplace. And you can even go back to August, and the FDA was saying they were putting together a working group in this area and they were gonna better oversee businesses marketing unproven interventions. So I think those are encouraging steps. I think they're positive steps. The FDA should be lauded for making these statements and for suggesting that they're going to play a more meaningful role in overseeing the marketplace. That said, you know, this has been a space where if you look back over the last five, six, seven, eight years, the FDA hasn't done an awful lot. They haven't entirely stood on the sidelines, but they haven't been very aggressive in this marketplace. I think one of the questions is going to be, are we really going to see a meaningful commitment in terms of the FDA, you know, allocating its resources, sending in more inspectors to various kinds of clinics? issuing more warning letters, perhaps working with the Office of Criminal Investigation or the FBI to bring criminal charges against some businesses? Or are we going to see these, these kinds of you know PR moves, statements where they say that they're going to take a more aggressive stance? And then are we going to see more of the same, You know, maybe a few more warning letters, a bit more regulatory activity, but not really all that much to alter the broad contours of this marketplace? I would say right now, you know, part of what was in the Statements from the FDA was that there was going to be this 36-month period, three-year period of enforcement discretion. And you know, the FDA would kind of be picking its targets. And so I would say right now it's this uncertain moment where if the FDA really steps up its enforcement activity in this area, and say dozens of businesses are issued warning letters, maybe criminal charges are brought against a few of the more most egregious businesses, I think that will change the marketplace. And some of the businesses making claims about stem cell interventions will drop away. They're not going to want to tangle with the FDA. But another possibility is that we have kind of this, you know, dual phenomena taking place of the FDA stepping up its activities a little bit in the marketplace while the business, you know, while the businesses themselves continue to expand. So it's actually possible those could both happen at the same time, a rapidly expanding direct-to-consumer marketplace and an FDA that puts a little bit more resources into it. Right now, at least, I'm not seeing significant changes in the marketplace. It's not as though websites are shutting down. It's not as though businesses are disappearing. But, uh, you know, we'll have to see what happens over the next several years.
0: Yeah. I mean, at this point, I mean, I have a friend who just went in for knee surgery. He got injections of stem cells into his knee. We hear about sports figures. You get injections into their shoulders, their knees, hips, whatever, and say, it worked for me. I healed faster. Is that kind of stuff going to put a kink in the progress?
2: that's sort of the kind of evidence that many of these businesses provide. It's using athletes, it's using celebrities to market the interventions. It's very common for these businesses to use testimonials. So have, say, an NFL player or former NFL player, major league baseball player, tout the, the benefits they experienced. So, you know, in terms of where things are going, I think we'll continue to see celebrities, athletes, and otherwise, being used by these businesses to tout stem cell interventions in terms of FDA activity, I guess we'll just have to see. I think this is what you're describing is actually a tier. There are some statements from the FDA that suggest that those are the kind of businesses that aren't going to be a high priority for the FDA, that clinics that are offering stem cell injections for orthopedic indications, musculoskeletal, they're not going to be a top priority for the FDA. They're going to focus on ones that are offering things like IV infusion for Alzheimer's disease or IV infusion for ALS multiple sclerosis and so on so it may be that there's a large swath of businesses the orthopedic clinics the sports medicine clinics that and there's hundreds of them maybe they're just going to carry on with their marketing claims using athletes making these these bold marketing assertions never having all that much evidence but not being uh, forced from the marketplace because they're just not a high enough priority for the fda yeah
1: I'll tell you, Lee, it's a pretty grim picture. I mean, I know there's a lot of optimism in the science, but it seems like once the humans get a hold of it, they just muck it up. Do you? Would you say that you're bearish on <laughs> the clinical or at least short-term kind of this application of stem cells in a kind of commercial way? Would you say that it doesn't look good, or are you optimistic?
2: Well, you know, just to step back for a moment, I think it is important to remember that meaningful stem cell research is taking place in many different institutions across many different disease and injury categories. And, you know, when we're focusing on stem cell quackery or stem cell snake oil, it is important to remember that there is meaningful research going on. and, And, you know, in time, we will see, I think, safe and efficacious therapies reaching people who need them. So I'll just put that out there as, you know, I'm optimistic that there are legitimate research programs that are underway. And it's not as though it's all hyperbole or, or, you know, kind of marketing assertions. But I would also say, you know, I think that uh, quackery and snake oil are kind of longstanding parts of the practice of medicine. There are plenty of individuals that see opportunities to make a lot of money off of vulnerable populations. And as long as the consequences aren't that great, I expect those parties to continue operating the cash register and making as much money as they can for as long as they can. So I think there's a meaningful opportunity here for a variety of regulatory bodies to intervene. If they do their job, I think we'll see uh, maybe not a disappearance of this marketplace, but, but a diminishment of its scale. Absent that kind of action, I don't think markets uh, self-regulate and self-patrol themselves. So if there's a chance to make money here off of individuals with ALS, yes, I mean, I think that will continue as, as long as people have that business opportunity. And that's why I think that regulatory bodies like the FDA and state medical boards, they need to be sufficiently well-funded to do the job that we ask of them. They need to have the resources that are required to play a meaningful role in overseeing the marketplace. As long as those resources aren't available, and there's a long history in the United States of underfunding regulatory bodies like the FDA, as long as these are paper tigers, then yeah, I think we're going to see more of these businesses pouring into the marketplace even if organizations like the FDA say that they're taking it more seriously.
0: There is also, I mean, not just the personal risk question, there's the longstanding question of, you know, individual destiny, like what you want to choose and how you want to operate on your own. And the regulatory bodies, you know, they're here to protect us from that, you know, the snake oil salesman. But it seems like these are two forces within our social sphere that are competing against each other? How much regulation do you have? And how much do you allow people to stretch out and reach out and try and find things that might work for them?
2: I mean, I, I think have a couple of ways of responding to what you're saying. And, you know, we are seeing some additional developments on the regulatory front. So for example, you know, the FDA now having categories like for medicine, advanced therapy designation, breakthrough therapies. I mean, there are a variety of accelerated pathways. So, you know, I think, The FDA understands the need that exists out there for for safe and efficacious therapies, stem cell and otherwise. And I think they're making meaningful efforts to create a variety of regulatory pathways. You know, they're not just barriers. They're not just impediments. I think the FDA is doing a decent job of trying to get stem cell therapies and other products to people in a timely manner, being, you know, cognizant of the importance of autonomous decision-making, for example. But I was also going to add to that that you know, another interesting phenomenon here is the way in which regulatory bodies, oversight bodies, can very easily be co-opted by market forces. So this, this kind of goes back to your earlier question where, you know, you have this really valuable website like clinicaltrials.gov, uh, which many of us turn to for information about what we think of as, you know, legitimate, well-designed clinical trials. And it turns out that if you're one of these businesses that's marketing stem cell treatments for 30 or 40 diseases, you can just cobble together a poorly designed study. You know, it could be for individuals in 20 or 30 different disease categories. You can charge people thousands or tens of thousands of dollars to participate in your study, register it on clinicaltrials.gov, and uh, presto, now you've got a, an NIH website, a government-funded website, basically it's purposed as a, as a marketing platform. So that's an example of how, you know, in this case, a website that's meant to provide meaningful information to people to make good choices is easily repurposed to just be used as a marketing device by these businesses and irbs likewise you know most of us think about oh irbs are there to make sure that clinical studies are well designed that are being properly conducted and it looks as though there are a modest number of irbs in the united states that are basically operating on a rubber stamp basis you know it would seem as though they're pretty much approving whatever studies are coming in front of them including pay-to-participate studies in which people are being charged for stem cell interventions, studies that should clearly go through the FDA have not gone through the FDA and yet somehow are being approved by, again, a small number of US IRBs. So I think it, in part, I think it shows the vulnerabilities of the institutions that we think of that are there to provide us with meaningful information and and also to protect us from dodgy marketplace actors.
0: So much to think about related to, to this stuff. But this is just fascinating to talk with you, and I don't want to keep you too much longer as we're heading up over the half-hour mark. So, Lee, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your, your thoughts with us on this fascinating subject that is going to be affecting a lot of people moving into the future.
2: Thank you. Well, you know, I, I get a lot of calls from individuals who are thinking of going to these businesses, and it's, it's always a struggle to know how to respond to those queries But there's a lot of challenging ethical, legal, social issues here. And and I really appreciate uh, you providing an opportunity to discuss them with you. So thanks very much.
0: Welcome.
1: All right, Dr. Lee Turner on the show. I mean, we could add two or three shows. I wish we had. I wanted to talk to him about some other stuff with the, you know, chimerism and organs and pigs. And I know, Kiki, you wanted to talk to him about this DIY CRISPR stuff that's going on sounds pretty freaky.
0: Yeah, and even DIY stem cell treatments, you know, these things are available. And people uh, alluded to in one of my questions, just kind of that autonomy of individuals to help themselves, to do what they want with their bodies, if they want to, whether it's accentuate muscle strength or whether it's treat a disease are the tools available and what are the ethical aspects of regulating all of that? And Lee Lee covered a lot of that ground, but there's still so much more as we move into our sci-fi future, (laughs) right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it sounds cool and terrifying at the same time. I wonder what his take would be on that. I mean, there is a certain degree to which you have to protect people from themselves, correct? I mean, and there's certain things we can't do it ourselves now. I wonder if CRISPR is going to fall into that bucket. But um, I guess subject matter for another show, Kiki.
0: Absolutely. But at this point, it's time for us to close the show with our stem cell podcast rant. And the rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. And Dalen, we're going to be following up on this ethical discussion with our rant today, aren't we?
1: That's correct, Kiki. Today, we're going to rant about snake oil. This is, generally speaking, snake oil, sales uh, of all sorts. You know, for me, it started when I was just a young, young lad, and I'm aging myself a bit, but I read a lot of comic books, and, you know, this is a story I'm sure 100 kids have told, about those dang x-ray glasses in the back that I was so, I totally believed in. I was totally invested. I saved a lot of money. I sent away, and, like, not only did I get... Nothing, which would have been, you know, I would have rather gotten a piece of junk, to be honest, because that would have dispelled the notion that these things even exist. But I got nothing and I committed my whole existence to getting these stinking X-ray glasses, which I secretly knew didn't exist. But if it was there in print, I assumed it must be true. And this is, I guess, the great naivete of youth. But it seems like we're all replaying our youth nowadays because we're just doing what the people tell us. They say it can cure our disease, and we say, where do I sign up? When are we going to wise up?
0: We want the magic pill that's going to fix all our problems so that we don't have to exercise anymore, we can eat as much as we want, and we're going to be completely healthy, right? We we live in this time where there's so much is possible thanks to science and medicine and technology, but at the same time, I mean, we are still we are still being preyed upon and falling victim to the shysters, the snake oil salesmen who are like, I've got this... Ointment. I've got this thing. It's going to heal you. And I, homeopathic medicine, that makes me so angry. I mean, you mentioned in the interview, it's like, well, if it doesn't hurt anyone, you know, and a lot of homeopathic stuff, no, it doesn't hurt anyone. You take your homeopathic cold remedy, and your cold lasts the same amount of time as if you took the over the counter medical remedy, right? The drug that's supposed to help the. It's still two weeks. That's just what's going to happen because that's. The way it works and maybe placebo effects make you feel better or not but then there are homeopathic remedies that kill babies because they're <laughs> not actually homeopathic and they really are putting active ingredients in these stupid things
1: and ah uh! so i don't i got a question for you and i got a question for the audience who do you blame the sales snake oil salesman or the snake oil sucker
0: I blame the salesmen because they are taking advantage of uncertainty and they are taking advantage of the fact that people don't know all the answers that we're not all educated in these areas of medicine or disease, you know, you you think, "Oh, I'm sick and you want something that's going to help you." And so you have to you you trust the labels. You trust the marketing. People are trustworthy. We have to be, right?
1: Yeah. You're right. But
0: then and then it's the people who are greedy and they just want your money and they don't care if you get hurt and I don't like them.
1: Oh man, <laughs> Kiki's gonna cry in a minute. <laughs> I'm
0: not. I don't understand, Dalen. I mean, I what goes through you. a person's head?
1: I've, I'm. You know, I I would say the same about the sucker. But you're right. Desperation and I guess it's desperation and greed. That's what drives this terrible cycle of snake oil so i guess we got to fix it on all sides education that's what we can do on our end kiki if you have a question about a stem cell trial send an email to kiki and i and we will find people who will debunk it for you or validate it by the way here's the first clue (laughs) if you're paying for it don't do it
0: Exactly. All right. I have more things to say and rant about, but we're going to cut it. We're going to cut it. It's the end of the show. Send us your rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email info at stemcellpodcast.com. And don't forget that we will be back in two weeks. This concludes episode 106 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Make sure you're back again in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you, Dalen.
1: Thank you, Kiki.